definitely a billion dollar problem, but also a billion dollar question. Just ask people to jump in. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of flack for this. Design should be more open. Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode. Today we are here with Martin Meshroth, who is a product designer at BCG Digital Ventures, which is a company builder in Berlin. Happy to have you here today, Martin. Hey, very happy to be on. You have a pretty rich career. You've worked in an agency, but today you're at BCG. So please tell me, how did your career evolve? Why did you pick this route and not the typical agency one? Yeah, I guess, I guess let's start a little bit at the very beginning of, because I feel like many people, I kind of became a designer. I wouldn't necessarily say by accident, but I think the premise of how I started my career was very early on, I've always wanted to make things on the internet. And I didn't even know to design was it was a thing, right? Like that people actually sat in front of a computer and they would actually make a thing and then that would be passed on to engineering and then that would eventually become a product or a service on the internet. So very early on, I, I was kind of fixated on this idea of, of, of just creating stuff and creating stuff on the internet. Now, I grew up in a very small village in, in Germany and honestly, I... I got a lot of weird looks and stares because that was not necessarily, at least at the time, so this was early 08, 09, um, was not a thing you necessarily wanted to do, create a thing People on this internet thing. It. Right, exactly. Like no one, no one actually thought that was a job, nor did I really know that the things and the tinkering that I was doing, so building websites and you know, using Dreamweaver and, and, and Flash and even a little bit of Photoshop back then was like, that was a profession. Like this was an actual thing that you could do. Um, uh, and, and it's a part of, you know, sort of this bigger orchestration of a team um, that, that creates stuff on, on the internet. Right. And so I tried myself a little bit in software development. I studied computer science and business, thinking it would get me closer to making things on the internet. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, in in as a business design intern at a company called Fjord, service design agency. And for the first time, that was when my eyes were sort of open to, oh, wait a minute, this actually is a career path. This is, you can do this and and you can do this and pay rent. And ever since then, I was, I was hooked. I dropped and and switched from business design to initially visual design. And, you know, my time at Fjord um, was, was a very fruitful one because they essentially taught me everything what design is. And I would then later on uh, sort of transition to different companies throughout my career to experience what design does. Um, and that's where I'm at now. I'm at a company that not only designs digital products, but builds them and also builds them with a business model or an actual business around them. And that's what we do at, at BCG Digital Ventures. So create a business. And oftentimes that is paired with uh, some sort of product design, 
digital product design within. Awesome. Like, that's a great story. Like, Fjord was, yeah, was the place that shaped you kind of, right? I would say, yeah. I would say I was very, at least at the, you know, you need to understand at the very beginning. So this was, this was 20, 2011 in, in Berlin and design or, or Silicon Valley was very much ahead. Berlin wasn't that much. The design scene and, you know, UX and UI it was still kind of the wild, wild west here. And in a sense, in terms of like development, a little bit delayed. So I feel like what I learned there initially was, was, you know, what, what, what is design fundamentally? And back in the day, there wasn't really, you know, to get to that point of, of 2011, there wasn't really a, a, a clear idea yet in Berlin, what UX, what UI, or what even product design would be on the internet. And there was also not really a resource. And, and so for me, there wasn't like a YouTube channel of people explaining you how to use Sketch or Figma, right? And I don't want to conflate or confuse design. Like Figma is not design, right? But um, it, it's a design tool. But essentially, the only way to actually really learn design from the ground up was, well, yes, you could go to design school, but the, the applicable parts of design, you would only learn at a company. And so, of course, that was foundational. It taught me what design is, that it's not a tool. And it taught me all the disciplines within design. I think working at a design agency, you you know, you take this sort of for granted, but there's so many disciplines in design um, that that you don't know of. So, so, of course, that kind of set the foundation um, you know, and, and having that environment of all these wonderful designers around me um, actually gave me a really good idea of, of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. That's great. Like design on the surface doesn't look so big, but once you do it, yeah, once you work in it, once you see the whole environment, it's so broad. And right now, yeah, you, as you said, you started in 2008, 2009. And that's over 13 years now. So what would you say is your favorite sector to work with? Where, where is the place that you shine the most or mm -hmm. that you get the most yeah. rewarding? <laughs> so I don't know if I, if I shine the most anywhere, but I think, um, I, you know, here, here's, I don't think I have a favorite sector. I have so many interests that it'd be really hard for me to sort of put the thumb on one niche thing. But... I do categorize products in, into, into sort of two buckets. One is sort of products where you spend time and two is sort of products where you save time. So spend time is like your newsfeed. So it's the Instagrams, the Facebooks, um, the Netflix. These are products where people spend time and a lot of their metrics are based around that. And then there's products that you save time. So this is actually maybe the Ubers, uh, maybe a part of the service of Amazon Prime, it's more convenient. The metric is more like less time spent in the application and, and trying to get to the job to be done. Generally, painting with a very broad brush here, consumer products tend to have more of the spend time sort of angle and B2B products tend to have more of the save time angle. I've, if I would have to choose a sector or what I sort of gravitated towards a lot, um, in 
in the past is, is always this idea of, of tooling and, and saving time and convenience and solving sort of real problems for, for people and, and trying to generate an impact. And, and that's sort of been a little bit sector agnostic. So, um, yeah, I think if I had to choose sort of topics I'm really interested in, it's, it's always kind of been like health, definitely longevity. I think this is becoming a big topic. And then for sure, like tooling. Um, so, so productivity tools or complex design tools or complex workflow yeah. tools. I think that that's where I kind of see myself um, yeah. over the past couple of years, actually. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. Like I didn't hear about it yet. So I think that more people can relate to you, like especially designers. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the... I think it's it's very glamorous. Well, I've never worked on a on a newsfeed product, right? So so take this with a grain of salt. But it, you know the products we use every day. Of course, all the designers want to work on on those on those products, and and they're extremely visible, um, right? Because you probably use them. You probably have an idea of of of, of what you want to change there, um, and. There's also a lot of problems to solve there. Like, don't get me wrong. And, and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're visible. You can, you can basically show them off in your portfolio. But then there's all these sort of hidden gems that make like, let's say, take N26. It's a digital bank, right? They have an app and they have to have that app on multiple platforms. But generally, there's probably also a lot of products inside of N26, I'm assuming, that, you know, help that bank actually do their job with their customers, right? And so it's the back office tool. It's And so to me, just out of pers- personal interest, I gravitate more towards this stuff than I actually do to the to the front-facing consumer stuff. Nice, Those problems nice. have to be solved, yeah, right? Like exactly. people don't want to use shitty tools at work. So um, <laughs> I think it's super rewarding, actually. And so just honestly, it's a little bit more complex, I feel like. Um, B2B is more complex, right? Users are not your customers. So there's, there's just more stuff, uh, you know, you have to untangle and, 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 and sort of, uh, and and sort of map out. So, so that's always fun. Like, I think that B2B is more complex or sophisticated because of the whole buyer journey that it's not so straightforward that you go to the store. Uh, I don't know. I want to buy this thing, click, take it to the basket and it's done. But you have buying committees, you have all those little things that have to be taken into consideration also. Oh, completely. Like sales cycles in, so let's say you're creating a SaaS tool, um, so software as a service uh, a product. The sales cycle and getting that thing sold is going to be, if you think it's two months, it's probably going to be four, right? Because like you said, you have to sell it to a company, not one individual. And there's processes within that company. And there's probably also procurement, right? And and so you have to kind of go through all these loops to get the software into the hands of the people. But I would say, though, if you just look at that sales, right? But if you look at it from a design perspective, I think there is this idea and trend, and it's been going on for, for quite some time now, that people want to use the tools they use privately also at work, right? Um and or the stuff you use at work, actually, you start using in your private life because it's so damn good, right? Like Notion comes to mind or, yeah. or Figma even. Like yeah. start using Figma for 
all kinds of stuff. I, I think it's really interesting how this is cross-pollinating. And, and obviously, it's a lot easier to, to sell it to me because if I use it at work, I just sign up. But convincing a company with a thousand people or, you know, huge companies, huge corporates or conglomerates with 500 to, I don't know, God knows how many is, is a lot, yeah. lot harder than you think. Yeah, it's harder to implement. As an individual, oh, sure. you right. can learn faster and yeah, you like it, you use it. If you don't like it, you can ditch it the other day. But when you're a company, it can be a bit harder. So do you have a favorite project that you've worked on? A favorite project that I've worked on? Um, or a project I, that I, had the biggest influence? Yeah, I think so. One of the things that was like uncomfortable to work on because I'd, I'd never done it was a couple of years back. We worked on this. I worked on a product that had a voice user interface. So a VUI. So this is when you talk to your, to your, to your Alexa or, or uh, Google home or, or Apple HomePod, I think it's called, that would yeah. be a voice interface. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think there is, so much to learn there and there's so much like mental modeling and also a little bit of behavioral science that you have to look into when you're designing for this. Um, and I, I think one of the most interesting things there just really from a design perspective was seeing in the field and, and just when, while you were designing and, and sort of also role playing this with other designers yeah. that when you don't have a visual prompt, things get a lot harder, right? Like the challenge of designing for a voice user interface is actually, it's pretty immense because you can't just take a UX pattern, like navigating in, in, in an application that has a vis visual interface and just put it into a box with a speaker, right? Like obviously yeah. that doesn't work. But then there's all these nuances that you start to see when, when you're testing this stuff with users. So um, you know, like this idea of a visual prompt and, and like cognitive overload, right? So, so now I don't have any visual prompt and how many things can a person actually remember at any given point in yeah. time? And, you know, how familiar are they with certain concepts? How is their brain wired? This is a lot of the stuff you actually have to do. Um, and a lot of the research component and product experimentation that you have to do at the, at the front of the design process, though. Yeah this way um, to, to, to actually get to a product that works, right? I think in, in the case of like voice user interface, a lot of the sort of best practices haven't even been written yet. At least they yeah. weren't at the time. And so this was, it was really fun, but it was also very discerning, disheartening and like, you know, a lot of pent up frustration trying to design for this because a lot of this stuff just, it didn't work. Right. Um, mm. I'll give a concrete example. So when you're in your house and you tell Alexa, like to turn the light on, well, that's really easy for you to do because you actually see the lamp and then that triggers visually like, yeah. Oh yeah, I named that lamp, you know, I don't know, uh, something in the app and, and then I can actually trigger the light to go on. It's like a yeah. lot harder to recall stuff that isn't in your apartment. Um, so, so what I think about here is, uh, if you want to play like your favorite song, like, 
do you actually, your current favorite song, do you actually recall the name of it? Like, or what playlist it was in, right? So like how you've organized it visually in, in an application um, is, is, you know, the, the, the interface helps you actually sort of like navigate to the, the intent or the thing that you actually want. And, and with voice UI, it doesn't. So you end up probably a lot of times like what people memorize and what they're familiar with is like the artist, right? So they'll yeah. basically go like play, uh, or no, songs by Drake, right? Because yeah. that's what they remember. And this is interesting, right? From a design perspective and like cognitively, but it's also mm -hmm. interesting on the other side, once you ship that product and you look at the data because the intent is I want to play my favorite song but all the data you're reading, if you're sitting with your product manager or with other product designers, um, is all you're seeing is people are using and calling artists all the time, right? And so now, like, that could skew, skew your opinion as a designer to go, like, well, people just, they love, like, calling artists. Yeah. The intent has changed, right? Like, this idea that the intent has changed. But it hasn't. It hasn't at all, really. Um, and the need hasn't really necessarily changed. They, they still want to play their favorite song, but like Drake is intimately more ingrained in their head and recall like in, in recognition and, and they're able to recall versus, you know, the playlist they put it on and they slap like a big ass name on it. Right. So I think also they're like iterating the product and iterating voice user interface is actually quite a challenge and it's really, really hard. And, and I don't know, I felt like, that was just one of those projects. Like, what if, you know, what's the so what of all this? Going through that process, it kind of helped me understand as a designer, like, oh, you you really need to like double check, double question every assumption from the start, especially with new technologies. And the observation, the observational component is so important after you've looked at the data. To go like, okay, data tells you why, like what or where to look, but it doesn't actually tell you why, right? So you treat with data, but you then kind of diagnose with design by going back into the field and doing user research or ethnographic research to really observe people and then kind of interpret the intent from there. I think that was sort of really some of the most favorite design work that, that I've done. Um, super cool. I, I get really excited yeah, like, about stuff. <laughs> I can hear it, and I even got excited because we also worked, uh, yeah, on those VUIs, and yeah, it's something completely different. Like when you look at it, even from the software perspective, and uh, it's not the typical thing. But what do you think will be the future for VUIs? Where will it, will it go? Well, I, th I think we still. I think generally when you're, I, I think people have adopted this idea of like having this thing in their home, like having in a siloed, in a siloed sort of confined space where there's no sort of social peer pressure. I think people are very comfortable talking to their devices. Um, I think that's, that's been normalized. I think depending on the country you actually go to, it's more, it, it really depends culturally um, how often like a, a feature like that is used. So for instance, in, in, in Spain, people would use the voice assistant a lot more than I would say in Germany. Um, 
just an observation from, from, from the field. I think it's the most natural interface, right? If you, even if you think of programming, right? Like all we've done is we've created this layer of abstraction because it only understands zero and one, but actually like it would be great to just, hey, can you make this, right? That's the most natural way we communicate. Why shouldn't technology also sort of enable that as well? So I think the, the very, very far future is like, that is definitely an interface of the future because it's hands-free and it's, it's zero friction in terms of like learning ability. Because if you speak the language, right, um, which you've trained all your life, hopefully, um, you're, you're, able to, you're able to actually very naturally speak to this. Now, that it then has a lot of implications in terms of accessibility because some people can't speak. But technology-wise, right, like think of an Alexa that can speak English, French, Greece. Like it's in terms of like capacity of humans, we always admire people that can speak like more than four languages and, and because it is, it's insane, right? But, you know, technology could hyperscale that, could speak any, any language in the world, uh, uh, potentially, if, if, if the models are trained appropriately. I think, you know, a lot of this stuff also... I don't know if you saw this uh, GPT-3 demo the other day where they created a, ah, I forget what it's called, but essentially they built a tool where you can just type into a text box what you want, like create a website and then put a man on this website. And they actually ended up building a game and so the neural network was coding in the background and was creating a game. It was creating a live website uh, nice. with the conditions very contextually. And the developers or engineers were essentially just typing into a text box. It's, it's insanity. And I think this, like technology understanding how we communicate um, is amazing, right? That's amazing. Voice is very natural. Words or written down words are the next thing, right? The next step. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely the future. I think where's it going? It's definitely going there, but it's going to take a pretty long time, right? To build models that are as good as, as, as we are in in sort of contextual conversation. Um, it can take years, but the possibilities and the doors it will unlock, it's yeah. Unimaginable. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah. So exciting. Uh, on the topic of software and design, yeah, do you think that design should be more open source, like software? Oh yeah, um, I I feel like I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, um, but I have very strong opinions that I think design should be more open, and I think it's time that design becomes open. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that closed design becomes less valuable. Like this is not a zero-sum game, right? It's a positive-sum game. If you look at what engineers have been able to accomplish, uh, you know, with open-source software over the last couple of decades, it's actually pretty amazing. We can automate a lot of the stuff that just doesn't need to be automated anymore. No designer or product designer should spend time, you know, refining the corners of a button. If your company hasn't even figured out, you know, what product to build or, uh, you know, if the product itself is valuable or if you're actually solving the problem that you set out to solve as a business, as a product, 
right? So I think the more we sort of open up design um, for the sake of helping other designers build amazing and design amazing stuff, um, uh, doesn't also take away from people that still want to continue uh, doing doing clothes design, right? I'm not saying open source everything. I'm not saying there's a zero one black and white reality. I'm just saying what's extremely been missing, or the or what's just it's very very frankly it has been missing because the technology wasn't there from 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 a design perspective to open source a lot of this stuff. So huge proponent of open design. The last thing the world needs is another icon file. Like we have enough yes. icon files. Like, like go, I'm not saying pretty icons aren't a thing that are great. And I love looking at them. And I also love creating icons and more power to you if you do too. But act, like what problem are you actually solving, right? Like how are you using your design skill set as a designer to solve some of the critical problems in the world. There's not a lot of us, right? And you're spending your time creating an icon file. It's like, uh, all I'm saying is think about if you're operating under your potential as a designer, right? Um, I'm not saying don't do those things. What I'm saying is maybe also look beyond the icon file every once in a while. That's beautiful. Like, yeah. And kind of inspirational. But what do you think, what can we do to make it more open? Well, I think, you know, <laughs> huge proponent of the, the company that's actually enabling this is Figma. So they've built a product called Figma Community. And it's essentially, on the surface, it looks very much like Dribble. But if you think about it, Dribble is only JPEGs, right? Or, or PNGs, or maybe a nice little MP4. And it's this idea of like, you know, portfolio replacement in a sense. Like, look, look at the cool aesthetic thing I made. But with Figma community, for the first time, I can upload an entire design file or design system and share that with the world. And now a junior designer can go in and look at how this design system is orchestrated, how the layers are put together, how things are named, right? This is the equivalent of looking at the code base of how someone built something in the open source community. And so I think this is what I want to get at. It's not about giving away free work or you know, taking away from closed design, it's enabling other designers to, you know, take away some of the, the, the grunt work and, and reinventing the wheel for the millionth time. And so community for the first time is a place where it doesn't stop at the PNG, right? You don't only upload the final product, you upload the actual file and people can download the file and they can remix it and they can build on top of it or take parts of it out and put it into their files, right? And I think this is this is incredibly powerful. And it wouldn't surprise me if at some point, because right now you can kind of on community only download files, if at some point there's an ability to contribute. So, you know, you upload a file on, on, uh, on Figma community, and then I'm like, hey man, this is really cool. Like, can I contribute? And I can branch in and branch out and we can work on something together. And it's this idea of like being a more vibrant community, building stuff maybe for other designers or building stuff for people that are non-designers and want to get into design. And I think that only, that is a, that's what I'm saying. It's a positive sum game. Everyone wins. And, you know, the critics, and this is the last thing I'll say because I'm so passionate about this, but I think a lot of people, you know, they go like, yeah, but then um, 
you know, like we're, we're exposing all our work and like how, how we're doing it. And I feel like, yes, we should. Because for a lot of people, design is the PNG. It's like, oh, it's this pretty thing. But by opening up the file, you show the complexity of design and the hard intellectual work that we do. And if th think if anything, it actually opens up the world to see, oh, actually, this is more complex than I thought. There's more thought in this than I initially thought, right? Um, and I think that that's just something I also kind of, you know, I guess sympathize with or, or want people to see, right? Especially for, 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 for the junior and senior designers, um, it's, it's, it's just they, they put in a lot of work. It's, it's hard. You have to have a little bit of tenacity to be really good at this. And I think this is also the first time where, where we can kind of expose that as a community to the, to the world. Yeah. Like, you know, by making things more open, there is also this thing that you enable innovation because more people yeah, will know what they can contribute to. Like it happened with marketing, it happened with software, like lots of great things happened because something was public already. Yeah. And it, absolutely, right? And developers have had that luxury for a very, very long time. And I think it's it's like it's long overdue, but it's finally happening also in design. So I I completely agree. Like you don't know by just opening up and, and shipping something. I think the the thing I romanticize with most is you create something and you 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 open source it, right? You you make it open. And then someone builds something really amazing with the work that you did, or you opened up something and they got an idea because of it. And that ends up being, you know, a thing or a product or service that really, really, you know, has some sort of impact or, or you know, God forbid, changes the world in a sense, right? Um, I think that, that that's amazing, right? That's that's what I want. Yeah. Like, yeah, we are constantly talking about development and design. So now the, comes the question, what do you think is the, biggest problem of designers that are working with developers? <laughs> um, the biggest problem of designers working with developers. So that implies the designers are the problem. <laughs> um, uh, I guess it depends on where you work, right? Like, I, I feel like I can definitely go a little bit into maybe challenges, right? Like challenges of, 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 and maybe paint a broader brush uh, across the product team for sure. Yeah, um, I think, I think you know, especially when it comes to sort of like design and um, like handing handing designs off to engineers or even involving designers in the process. I think you know, for for the design process itself, I would say open design is also opening up the design process a little more, right? And getting product people, getting your engineers into the design process very, very early on. And I know it's cliche, right? But like now the tools and especially with all this remote work, they're enabling that. That's what Figma does, right? It actually gets rid of this, like a uh, PM talks to the designer, designer talks to the engineer, engineer talks to the PM, and then you have this triangle. Actually, what's happening is kind of morphing you know, more to the center and the lines are blurring a little bit because everyone's looking at the same source of truth in these multiplayer tools. So I would say like 
think about how you can open up your design process a little more to include people early on because your best ideas might actually come from an engineer. Like, have you thought about this? No, I haven't. That's actually a really good idea. Like, that's a very practical approach to validate, you know, if, if, if this approach would actually solve the problem for users. Um, so opening up the process, I think the second thing is more tactical is like, just when you're shipping stuff, have common language. So what I mean by that, have a common design language, meaning you probably have a design system or a component, a UI component library somewhere. Um, you're naming components the same. Uh, a lot of times what we do, and it, it sounds silly, but we have a taxonomy table where we, where we list out as a product team what we're calling things. So when we're in meetings and we talk about, um, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, order dates or, or, you know, ETAs or, or I don't know, chapters or groups. Like, what do we mean by that? Are we, are we talking about the same thing? So just listing out what we're talking about, what the taxonomy is and what we mean um, actually helps a lot. The last thing you want is two people agreeing on a thing and then they have completely de different definitions of what they just talked about. And then they end up going, you know, going out of the room and, and developing something completely different. And it's the equivalent of, you know, designer builds the, the, the bathroom and, and, and like uh, the living room. And then all of a sudden, like at the end of the, the whole thing, the, the roof doesn't fit. Right. So um, I think that common language is, 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 is really important. Uh, common design language, co common actual language when you're in the meetings. And um, I think sort of the, the last thing, I think it slipped my mind actually. Um, yeah, I think those are kind of the, the, the two buckets. I thought I had a third one actually, but um, yeah, just kind of slipped. Yeah, maybe later. But yeah. th those little things, those basics are the things that can make the biggest difference. It's just about yeah. opening up and communicating all the time. Like a, an engineer has a completely different perspective on some things, but yeah. maybe he worked on a similar product product or project before. So mm -hmm. he can give some different insights and yeah, that can have a huge influence later. Yeah. I think the last thing that I actually wanted to say and just coming back now is, you know, along those lines of, you know, you have a common language, you have the taxonomy also look into like automating the stuff that can be automated. Right. Um, you know, as a designer. Yeah. Like use the no code tools. Like, uh, you know, it's stuff like it's really simple stuff. It's like, uh, it might get a little bit into product management territory, but like if your engineering team is using a different tool than your design and product team to spec tickets or write the design briefs, like, how are you getting engineers to get to the why in that information, right? Can you send it over with a Zapier? Can you automate stuff like this? I think that's also crucially important. Um, so because it takes, once you automate some of the stuff, it gives you back time to work with these people more closely in the process um, and, and, and create great products in a sense. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the biggest, the biggest challenges. And yeah, like we think differently, but that's the beauty, right? That's the, yeah. that's what makes a product team. Yeah, it's exactly. the, the, the product manager comes in and tells you why, and then designers annoy him about, wait, why are we doing this? Do you have proof? Like, have we done our research? 
And then, you know, we come up with the what. So what are we doing? This flow, that flow, is this the approach? And then engineers annoy us of like, oh, is this even feasible? Like this, we can't build in this amount of time, right? And it's this constant negotiation, but, you know, no one is, um, at the end of the day, it's it's a team effort to to get something out of the door, right? And and try to ship the thinnest slice so you can learn and, and then iterate on it. And then you're never done. That's also a great thing, right? It always continues. And you know, everybody's working towards the same goal. Yeah, exactly. So, Martin, if you had a billion dollars, what problem would you work on? I think the obvious answer is climate change. But it's su such a big topic. Like, I wouldn't even, honestly, I wouldn't even know where to start. Like, that, that, need, that needs to be a joint effort. And there's probably a lot, a lot of businesses to be built there. I think... An interesting area for someone to look into is I think I think human-centered design actually got us into this problem in the first place. So I'm not saying human-centered design is bad, but you know, if you center everything around the human, generally we tend to be very egoistical creatures and what we want as individuals doesn't necessarily represent the greater good of a society. And so Developing products and services that are very human-centered might actually mean extreme environmental impact that is not good for society as a whole or the world, and someone has to suffer at the end. So I think we need to get rid of this and come up with something that also has ethics and sort of society at large kind of baked into um, the design process. I think we've hidden, you know, we, we've sort of hidden behind a, behind a rocker in a cave when it came to the second and third order implications of the things that we put into people's hands. And it's time to keep ourselves accountable to that. So maybe a billion dollars, I don't know if that's too much for a new design framework, probably is. Um, but honestly, I haven't been quite able to put my thumb on it. But there's something about Apart from climate change, there's something about asymmetries in our society developing. And this has gone, gone on for, for quite some time. You can see it in political divide. You can see it that products are actually fueling some of this stuff. And I can't really formulate what the problem is, but I feel like fixing these asymmetries in terms of wealth, in terms of economic opportunity, um, I think this is something that is that is extremely interesting. And I think it's definitely a billion dollar problem, but also a billion dollar question. Um, but it's something I think very, very deeply about. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, in web 2.0, so, you know, kind of what we're seeing now, we, we created monopoly companies that have huge profits where the tech employees obviously profit for, by being employed by these companies, but You know, and arguably, you know, uh, big evil Google or like, you know, Facebook with 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 newsfeed and, and sort of everything that's happening there with sort of political divide, like the impacts. Yeah, they're they haven't. Let's just say they haven't reduced it. Right. And in terms of the asymmetries in society and as a company, but also the, the products they produce. And this is no no shape or form of criticism. The, these 
it's, it's the hardest thing to solve. Like no one has built a thing with 3 billion users ever. No one, no one has, no one has done that. Right. And, and there's, there's, there's so much that probably goes on at that company just to, just to figure out, you know, like, how do you, how do you curate content? How do you, how do you make sure that appropriate content is shown? How do you not build these bubbles? Right. Um, so, but it's like, like this asymmetry problem is, is extremely interesting to me. Um, yeah. That's what I would work on if I had a billion dollars, but I probably, I don't know. I don't know if I'd come up with a solution. I don't think I'm that confident. It's also a big problem like like climate change because in the asymmetry, like it can even depend on the country, like from country to country. There are asymmetries even in West Europe between the countries. Oh yeah, for sure. There's asymmetries everywhere, right? Yeah, exactly. On the macro down to the, down to the city in a company down to the gender pay gaps that you have, right? Like yeah. there's asymmetries everywhere. And yeah, I, I mean, the, the promising sort of horizon is a little bit this idea of web 3.0. So decentralized technology, right? To give people access to banking and sort of level the playing fields and provide economic opportunity. But there, you know, we're pretty much still in the the dabbling phases. People, people are trying to figure out the use cases, but the, there's nothing that really has been solved yet. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely a, a, a very interesting thing to uh, tackle in the future. Yeah. And do you think there is a way to determine if a problem that you're working on is real? Because we know that there are some projects that, yeah, they get created, but they aren't solving a problem that is real. So, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I just tell folks to like, just write your problem down and you'd be surprised how many disagreements you would actually start having within a team to like, so just formulate in a very succinct way of what the problem is you're trying to solve. And, you know, words matter. And I kind of always tell designers in a sense, or even, you know, this is constant voice in my head that. Actually, really great product design just starts with words and the ability to sort of articulate, you know, the problem at hand for whom you're solving it for. Um, so I think that's step one. Step two is like, okay, how do I prove that this is actually real? Right. So now you're probably going to hopefully talk more to more people than just your mom. Right. Yeah. So you probably also have to deploy some methods some structural methods to compare the data points if you're talking to folks, right? Depending on where your product is in terms of life cycle, like if you have data and you're working on an existing product, obviously look at the look at the data of the product. And again, be careful with the data itself. It only tells you what or where to look, but it doesn't actually tell you why people are behaving a certain way. So you're still going to have to then go out and sort of do uh, focused qualitative user research or ethnographic research. And then I think the third thing, and this is what a lot of people forget, is, and it is a little bit PM territory, but I do think as a designer, you should be curious enough to also think about how are you going to prove, like to yourself as a designer, but also the team, how how are you going to measure success, right? How do you know you've actually solved the problem, right? And I think there's, so 
I did not invent this. Generally, I think this is a problem uh, uh, problem solving framework from I think Facebook uh, even. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, there's it's it's very simple, but these questions are like super hard to answer right, and you need to actually deploy a lot of you know uh, resources towards it, and it's it's incredibly hard, right? Just even in the discovery phase. You know, you can't, and it's not that linear, right? Like going back and forth between, okay, I wrote down the problem and then you learn something and then you go back and you got to refine the problem. Like that can take weeks, maybe even a month, right? Months. And then at the end, as a designer, you're kind of like, like, here it is, the problem <laughs> statement, right? And it's two sentences on a notion page. And then like people, yeah. you know, they, they almost get kind of like aggravated in a sense um, yeah. because like, that's all you did. It's like, yeah, but like, this is actually really the value par- valuable part of design is like sifting through yeah. and, you know, uh, making the company or the product team build the right product. Yeah. But some people don't understand how much work has to go into that. And yeah. Yeah. That's a design leadership problem. Yeah. So hopefully the design manager or director or VP can explain that to the relevant people. Right. Um, yeah, I think I think that's where uh, uh, that sort of comes in, at least for the first time. And hopefully, if you set up that third point and you make it measurable, I think you then actually have data to start supporting your argument, and that compounds, right? And then you make design measurable. And once you make it measurable, you learn a lot about you know what design not only is but also what it does. And then your argumentation, you know, in a maybe even bigger tech company becomes a lot easier because you have the metrics and hopefully you can also connect the metrics to the, to the dollars at the end of the day. Yeah. And what would you say? How important is the ability for a designer to, yeah, to operate on different heights? Hmm. I think this is one of the, so when we talk about like flight heights, I've, I personally think a lot about thinking in systems, right? Products are systems and flows exist within the system. But when you're working on a flow, you constantly need to think and map how something, how things fit, how things fit into the product, how they'll fit into there in the future. What are the second and third order implications? So I think this is one of the most crucial skills that you actually learn as a designer fairly early on compared to some cross-functional partners actually, where you sit in a meeting in the morning and you might actually have a high-level strategy discussion. And then after lunch of getting your hipster coffee, you are in a design system and tweaking the radius of a, of a button that you know gets used across all the products. And you can kind of think of like, how will this ripple into um, you know, other teams but then essentially, how does it get to the end user? So this idea of thinking high level across the function, so the fluency to design, but then also this idea of switching flight heights within design, right, is, is super important in discovery, um, but also helps you in, in sort of production work. If you kind of go product discovery, product delivery, um, and chunk that up there. I think it's, it's one of the most crucial skills. Yeah. And how can people learn it? Honestly, I think this is a on-the-job sort of thing. I think 
this has a lot to do with building your design intuition and shipping a lot of product and getting and being curious enough to actually, you know, going after and kind of looking at, okay, how does the thing, how did the thing work that I shipped? Like, did it actually solve the problem? And I can tell you nine times out of 10, it doesn't, right? And so um, at least in the beginning, like completely different to, to what you expected, um, good or bad, but essentially doing that a lot and the premise is you're extracting the right learnings, right? That means you have to make hard, like really hard decisions often. And you kind of start understanding this connection between the flight heights of a decision because you've decided a lot, right? The decision of like, ooh, I think this is a reoccurring theme. Making this decision will actually result in this, right? And there's a lot of assumption baked in. But I think as you transition, ship a lot of product as a designer, and you're also curious enough to sort of look at the feedback afterwards and sort of work on the iteration, you know, two and three after. Um, that's kind of how you train it. You can read also design systems thinking books, right? There's there's nothing wrong with with reading the literature. Ideally, you combine that with actually working on the job and and then really seeing what design does. Like that's a great answer. <laughs> like I'm stunned. <laughs> But I have one more question for you. Sure. What's your one tip for someone who yeah, is at the start of their design career? What should they do to be mm-hmm. a good designer? I think at the very beginning of your career, remember your, like the cliche, like follow your heart and write and work on the stuff that, you know, yeah. <laughs> you actually want to work on. Right. Because like, there's no sense in you working and designing something and pushing and drawing boxes, something you don't believe in. Like, don't do that. That's not good. That's not how you learn. Um, and that would be the transition into sort of like, with that out of the way, that would be the transition into like, I think what's super important is get yourself into environments where you're learning every day. And that might be in like a company with really smart people and you're always in the room or sitting next to someone that like, oh, nice. I learned something new today. Like I learned something in design. I might have learned something in product. I learned something in engineering. Uh, I learned something about making something, right? And um, I think that's, it's so important, right? It's important in, in athletics, especially, right? There's a reason why there's an Olympic team, right? They train together and... Um, I'm not saying the corporate team is an equivalent to an Olympic team, but it, these environments shape you as a designer and you want to get into the environments where you're learning a lot. And then, you know, initially I would say that the title doesn't matter. Get into the environment where you can learn all the things. Um, and also, you know, that at least what was super helpful to me was being exposed to all these design functions very early on in my career. And being able to put the thumb on what I really wanted to be. And I could only do that by dabbling and sort of trying out multiple sort of dis- disciplines in a sense, right? So I think that would be like my advice for if you're starting out. Um, I think also now compared to when I started, like there's so much more resources that you can leverage. Like listen to the podcasts, like design details or you know this one or 
go to Medium, read on some stuff. There's a lot easier way to actually start transitioning into design um, in sort of a passive format where you're like, I don't have to go all in right now. I can just kind of uh, get build a little bit of an understanding. And then there's stuff like you have access to all the great design folks because our discipline is becoming a little bit more organized now on ADP list. Go to ADP list, get a mentor, schedule a call, reach out on Twitter to people. They might not write back, but what if they do, right? Like, how is it to work at Twitter, design uh, the design systems team at Twitter? Like, connect with people, ask them, reach out to them. And, you know, you, it's kind of this two-way conversation of like, do you actually want to get into this? Like, uh, like do I want to do this? Because you need, I, I kind of mentioned it, you need a little bit of tenacity to, 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 to do this. And sometimes you're stuck and that sucks. And then, or the thing you're, you're designing is just, it doesn't really, it doesn't really work or it it can be frustrating at times. Um, And, and, you know, like you need to be kind of aware of what you're getting yourself into. And then once you're in it, like, you know, you can continue still using those, those resources in a sense. I think, I guess the second tip is, uh, maybe let's do two. Let's do like uh, you know that was starting out. Maybe let's do a, sec- a second segment of like uh, when you're in it. I think when you're in it, I think a, a thing I learned way way, uh, or it took me a little bit too long to learn is exactly when you're stuck, ask for help. Like if you have designers around you, and you have that luxury, you don't have to solve it all by yourself. And especially now with the tools, what they enable, like. You know, depending on the relationship with the designers that you have in the company, maybe you have to build it first. But hey, I'm really stuck at this thing. Can we like, you know, just look at it for two hours together and like, you know, just try to ship it? Like, um, or what do you think of this? Um, do a silent critique. You can even do asynchronously. Just ask for help. Design gets better the more designers look at it, or the more people you in, you involve. Right? Open up that design process a little bit. I'm not saying make your PM a designer. What I'm saying is just get input, um, right? And, and I think people, that, are, people yeah. are there to help. They want to help. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of times we're in our way, you know, like there's a little bit of this ego play um, in design still. And yeah, I think just like there's no shame in just like asking people to help, even, you know, if the thing is... Uh, uh, you know, what you're working on is, is the actual design, right? It doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be polished. Just ask people to jump in. I think the third one is sort of as you're transitioning and, and sort of taking care of like a group of designers. So you're going more down like the management route. I think once you start designing, like never stop designing, even as a design leader. And what, what I mean by that is not using Figma and drawing buttons. What I mean by that is like, how are you running your meetings in your design team? How is your design process like orchestrated across the teams? How is your design hiring process? How is the onboarding experience, right? Never stop designing for your team or for your company, right? And, you know, the, the, I think it's a like it's it's really true in product and and you know also startup land that the worst thing you can do to a startup is is distract it from what what's most important. I think the worst thing you can do to your design career is you stop designing. 
And so I would never, unless you actually want to, because when you stop designing, which is fine, you might switch roles, right? That's also super cool. But when you stop designing, you're, you're not a designer anymore. That's like a mic drop at the end. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe that is the mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> so, Martin, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, you can catch me on Twitter, uh, majroth. So that's M-A-J-R-O-T-H. And I try to reply to all the DMs. I'm more of a lurker. I'll retweet some stuff. I dabble around on LinkedIn a couple of times. And then, of course, find me on Figma community. So figma.com slash at Martin. I was very, very, uh, uh, very fast to secure that handle. Um, yeah. And then just download some stuff, build some stuff, ship some open design stuff for other designers to, to see, learn, and, and use. Awesome. Like, thank you very much for today, for this whole conversation and all the great insights. Yeah, I hope this was helpful. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This podcast is brought to you by Elite Crew, the software house that helps designers shape the world. If you need help with your project or want to consult technical matters, just drop us a message at elitecrew.io. We'll be happy to help.